ever asked you to do anything that you knew that would be impossible, would require a lot of sacrifice, it meant that you would have to put everything on the line? And as you're considering that, we are contemplating, reflecting on whether or not we're going to do what God is asking us and inviting us to do. Henry Blackaby calls it a crisis of belief. And God invades our lives and invites us to join him and he asks us to do or to fulfill or to become or to change or to go with God in a way that seems impossible. The mountains are so high that they seem almost as if we can't overcome them. The obstacles are too great that we just don't see how they're going to come down. The sacrifice may just seem too great that we're not sure if we can equal the task and surrender what is necessary. And it's at those moments, I think, that he comes and he invades our lives as he invites us to join him. And he gives us then some assurances that if we will go with God, if we will take the leap of faith, if we will step out and trust him, there are some assurances that he will give us that are designed by him to strengthen our faith, to enable our faith, and to help us to go on with him. That's what he does in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, and I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. Now, there's a lot of passages in this text this morning. We're going to highlight a few. We don't have time to digest and discuss all of them, but we're going to highlight here in what I believe is God's activity. God is at work on the other side of the Jordan just as much as he is on this side of the Jordan on the eastern side. It is, it is unfathomable for us to think that the limitations that God is exercising here and trying to and seeking to accomplish and fulfill his purpose are just happening inside of the Israelite camp. They are camped on the eastern side of the Jordan. God is actively working. He has called Joshua to be the leader that God would use to propel the people into the promised land, to lead them into the promised land. He has accepted that call. God has indicated to Joshua he is to command his officials, in which they do, to go throughout the land and to tell the people in three days, pack it up, we're going to step out in faith and cross the Jordan into the promises that God has for us, awaiting for us in to the promised land. And it is here this morning that we're going to learn that while God is actively preparing God's people to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land, God is also already working. He is active in the hearts and the lives of the unbelievers, of those who are occupying what is rightfully those who belong to God. He's already at work there orchestrating all that is necessary so that as they launch out in faith, all the mountains will come down, all the obstacles will be removed, all the barriers will be demolished, and the enemy will be defeated, and God's people will inherit and will receive the promised blessings of God. So what are the assurances here? In this text, first of all, we are assured, as Israel was, that God has a plan. If you take a look at the text in verse 1, chapter 2, you read, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. What's the plan? Well, I'm convinced that Joshua did learn from Moses, but he's not sending two spies into the land simply because he watched what Moses did and is trying to duplicate what Moses did. While there may be some merit to that argument, I'm not quite sure that's why he did it. Moses sent 12, Joshua selects two and sends two. So there's a, a difference already there. Uh, as you take a look at, at what Joshua tells these two men to do, he wants them to secretly cross over the Jordan and go into the land, especially Jericho, and to investigate the enemy. Now, it is a little bit different here because Moses sent the 12 and all of Israel knew when the 12 were sent. And so they were awaiting the 12 to come back of the report. Here in this text, we see in Joshua 2.1, where the secrecy here is, 
among the people of God. Uh, God does not want, nor does Joshua want, the people of God to know that he's sending the two spies over. And so this is a secret thing between Joshua, God, and these two spies. And these two guys are selected primarily, I think, because of their strong faith in God and their inability to sort of fit in to the, to the population there in which they are going to go spy out the land. So they are chosen. Chosen why? To investigate the promised land. Now, you kind of scratch your head and you kind of wonder, well, what's the plan here? What's the purpose that God has in doing this? Well, I'm convinced that the reason why God is doing this isn't because he's trying to just help Joshua prepare for the battle and be strategic enough and careful and, and cautious enough before he advances. It's not a lack of faith on Joshua's part. We understand and we know that Joshua has incredible faith in God because when he, one of the 12, was sent by Moses to cross over the Jordan and to spy out and to investigate the land, that he came back, he was only one of, the t- of, of 12, well, there were two of 12, he was one of the two of the 12 who came back with a favorable report. He said, we can take the land. Yeah, there's giants there, and yeah, there are fortified cities, and yeah, there are obstacles, and yes, there are battles that have to be fought, but they can be won, and we with God can go forth, and we know what happened to that, right? Now, 40 years later, they're at the doorstep of the promised land, and Joshua now is commanding uh, the people as they are. He's the leader to take the people over into the promised land, and uh, he's sending two. Why would he do that? Well, I think Joshua is wanting to know if conditions have changed in 40 years. Wouldn't you want to know that? You know, I was there 40 years ago. I want to know what the conditions are. And I want somebody to come back with a report. And so he sends two spies over, not just to come back with a report to see if conditions are changed, but I think also he understands and he knows that faith is developed in small steps. Faith is developed in small steps. Now, this whole story, this whole narrative is a testimony. It's a record of the two spies in the story, as we're going to see at the end, who came to Joshua and told him the story. And, and, and this is a large chapter in which we see all of the activity of God, not only with these two spies, but we learn all of the activity that God is engaged in in order to prepare even the enemy for the invasion of the army of God to go over and to seize what is rightfully theirs. And so here I believe that God's plan and his purpose is to send these two spies over so that when they come back of a report, that Joshua and the people of God understand that as they view, as they see, as they understand, as they come to know that God is not only active here in getting us ready to cross over, but he's also active over there getting the enemy ready for their defeat. And that emboldens them. It strengthens their faith. And God is assuring them that he has a plan. And God is assuring them at this moment that I am actively working in the camp of the enemy to prepare them for their defeat. It is a, an opportunity for God to strengthen their faith. But who of us, before God comes and invites us to do large things, invites us to do small things? And as we launch out in faith and step out blindly, believing and trusting God, that God is faithful to his word and he's going to come through for us and grant us his will. I think that's a part of what's going on. God is assuring Joshua. I mean, it's, it's similar to what Jesus did in John 5, isn't it? 
where Jesus, it says, if you've done experiencing God, and some of you are, there's an enlightening passage in that, in that whole chapter in John 5 where Jesus was walking around and he simply saw what God was doing and he simply joined God in what God was already doing. And when he joined God, miraculous things happened. That's the context here, I think. Joshua is seeing with the eyes or through the eyes of these two spies Yes, God is actively working, and we're simply going to step into what God is already doing. And therefore, as we do that, miraculous things are going to happen. Every time when we step out in faith and we recognize and understand that God is working and we simply join him, miraculous things happen. Why? That's his plan, and that's his purpose for them and for us. That's the assurance that he gives the people of God. He says, I'm assuring you I have a plan. I'm assuring you I have a purpose. But secondly, I'm assuring you that I have provisions. I will provide your, for, for whatever you need. I'm going to provide everything you're going to need in order to occupy and to possess the promise that I have promised not just Abraham, not just Moses, not just Joshua, but I have promised you. Now here we see in verse 2, which is not recorded up there, that the spies are sent out. Joshua, and they are undetected by the Israelites. No one knows that the spies have left the camp, and they have secretly crossed over the Jordan. They have done some investigation throughout the, the area there around Jericho, but as they make their way into the city of Jericho itself, they're discovered. And uh, you see, the reason why they're discovered, I believe, is because Jericho is well aware that the enemy is camped on the other side of the Jordan. They are well aware that they are going to come and invade their territory and seize their land. And so they're watchful. They're alert. They have their own people at strategic places watching for foreigners and for strangers who are journeying in from the east, watching them come in, making sure that they're not a part of the invasion of the enemy. And so as they sneak out of camp, they're not able to sneak into the city undetected, and they are quickly identified. And uh, as they're making their way through the city, we don't know how long they ventured throughout the city of Jericho, but nightfall quickly came, and they needed a place to bed down for the night. And luckily, in Jericho, there was a Motel 8. You know one of those places where they leave the light on for you? And so they recognized the light. Is it six or eight? Yeah, whatever. Six or eight, 12, 15. It was one of those places, you know. And the light was blaring. And they said, aha, vacancy, vacancy. So they went in. And unbeknownst to them, uh, there was a lady there who owned the, the establishment named Rahab. Now, many believe that Rahab was a for, former prostitute. Some believe she was a present prostitute when they encountered the two spies. It doesn't really matter whether she was a former or present. I guess it does if you want to, you know, argue the case. But uh, it is also believed that many times these Motel 6s or 8s or 12 or whatever were also used for uh, these... Uh, these evil things, these, uh, these places where encounters were, were going on. And I'm going to let your imagination go wild with that, but don't get too wild, okay? And uh, so that, that was kind of a, it was an inn where people spent the night, but also a place, an establishment where prostitution was conducted. And so there was a dual purpose. Some believe that as well. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, what matters is that these two men, as they're walking through the streets of Jericho, they encounter a lady named Rahab. And they bed down for the night. They 
rent a room. And notice what happens there in verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman, this is Rahab, Rahab, had taken the two men and had hidden them. She had hidden them. Now, this lady is risking not just her life, but her family and her business for two foreigners, two spies, who are now renting a room for the night to sleep, to rest from their travels because they're spying out the land. Why would she do that? What would cause her to risk everything, to put it all on the line for two men who are foreigners, who are strangers. As a matter of fact, they're hostiles. And she knows that soon they're going to come and destroy Jericho and more than likely wipe her out, her business, and her family. Well, I'm convinced that the reason why is because God, for 40 years, has been providing Rahab with exactly what is necessary. So at the right time, the right moment, and the right opportunity, two men who were spies, who were sent by God through Joshua to spy out the land, and who land, and as they're walking through the streets of Jericho, encounter her, rent a room, and now as the soldiers are coming and they ask for the spies, she says, I haven't seen them. Now here, here's the stretch, and it's not really a big stretch. For 40 years, we don't know how old Rahab was, but he gave this lady life. He sustained her life. He blessed her life. He led her throughout her life. He established in her a sense of business. She was a proprietor. She owned a business. She established this business. It was a successful business. And because of that, two men who were spies, who were spying out the land, just happened? Just happened? Is it a coincidence? Is it luck? Is it fate? Or is it God? I believe it's God. God has raised up this lady for all of these years, has placed her exactly where she is with what she has in order for these two spies to find shelter. That is God doing that. That is not just two men who just happened to, because of a lucky streak, ran into a lady who just happened to put it all on the line to risk everything for two guys that she doesn't know. That's not going to happen naturally unless God intervenes. God provides for these two spies in a foreign land where they're spying out in a place where their lives themselves are at risk. You know, God does that when he calls us. He provides for all of our needs. And as God calls you and as God places you and you obediently step out and walk in faith to trust him, it's interesting that God is already at work where he is calling you, where he's inviting you to go, and he's already actively working so that every mountain, every barrier, every obstacle, every challenge, every enemy is already being prepared for your victory. That's the kind of God that we have. He's a provisional God. So he assures not only these two spies in Israel, not only of his purpose and his plan, his provision, but also his power. Notice the text in verse 10. Here we see the power of God. Rahab begins to interact a little bit with these two spies, and she then begins to testify and to tell that they have heard about Israel, and they have heard about what the Israelites' God has done for Israel. Notice the text in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water, of the Red Sea before you were before I'm sorry before you 
went, this is kind of strange wording here, isn't it? It doesn't sound proper in the English grammar. It just doesn't. Before you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Notice her testimony. She says, we've heard the report. What report? The report that that God has rescued them from their, their captivity, from the enslavement of an Egyptian king, and he has liberated them miraculously. He led them then with their backs up against the wall in the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry land. And when the king's army began to, to, to proceed through that dry land, God destroyed that army, and he rescued them. They heard about that. They've heard about the wanderings in the wilderness. They, they more than likely have heard about the pillar of cloud by day and the, the cloud of fire by night. And, and they've heard about the, the other battles that have taken place now on the eastern side of the Jordan and the victories that God has granted his people. And they have heard about the power of God. And because they have heard about the power of God, notice that they have lost their courage. They have lost their hope. They have lost any expectation of ever defending against this army who has such an amazing, powerful, strong God. They've heard of his power. You know, God's power is so strong that not only will it defeat our enemies, but God's power will go before us as he has gone before his people here and has already began to cause the enemy to quake in their boots or their sandals. And it's destroying their courage so that when the people of God get to the place where God has said, this is your place, they already believe they're defeated. He not only brings down strongholds, fortifications, and the enemy, but even advances for us, ahead of us, destroying all of the weaponry and all of the defenses of the enemy so that when we get there, the victory is already ours. He's saying to them and he's saying to us, I am assuring you of my power. If you'll step out and if you'll go, I'll empower you. I'll enable you. I will strengthen you even before you get there, working on your behalf against your enemies and against the strongholds that would come against you and prevent you from receiving what I intend for you to receive. He's assuring them of not only the purpose or the plan, the provision, and the power, but also he gives them promises. There are some promises. And the promises we find in verse 12. Notice what happens in verse 12. Rahab is, is, is now making an appeal to these two spies. And, and because she recognizes the power of God and she understands that the wrath of God is about to be poured out upon Jericho and that God's people are going to mightily defeat Jericho, the walls are going to come tumbling down, the people are going to be destroyed, and Israel is going to receive their inheritance. Notice what she says in this, this conversation between this, this pagan, almost hostile force toward two men of God who are spying out the land. Notice what happens, verse 12. And then she says, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house 
and give me a sure sign? That you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. You know, when I read that, I thought to myself, it sounds as if Rahab is more concerned about the salvation of her family than she is about her own salvation, doesn't it? She mentions them first. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Isn't that interesting? Here this, this lady who is, is living in a, in a hostile territory, who is not really a friendly to, the, to God's people, who, who is already understanding that God being the God that he is, has already granted this territory that she lives in, to God's people, now comes to these two men who are representative in her mind to God because she doesn't have a connection to God. So these two men representing God, she approaches them and says, hey, will you, will you strike a covenant with me? I've been kindly toward you. I have risked everything for your safety. I have risked everything in your, for your God. I have risked everything for this promise that God is going to give you. Not, not only that, I believe that your God, Jehovah, is the only true God. Not only do I believe that he is the only true God, but I believe he is sovereign Lord over all. And because he is sovereign Lord over all, he has granted you the territory that I'm occupying right now. And I know that he's going to grant it to you one of these days. And when that day comes, will you remember Remember me and my family and the kindness that we displayed for you at this time and your people so that you could be faithful to your God and your God could be faithful to you. Will you remember me? and Will you save me and my family from this destruction for the, for the kind things that I've done? And they say, sure. But there's two things that we ask. Number one, don't tell anybody when we leave that we came and that we're coming. And, and number two, make sure that everybody in your family is inside of your household here because you know, when, when the army comes and, and, and we defeat Jericho, you're going to have to have a, a safe place, a safe house, a safe place where you'll, where you'll be safe. And so we will guarantee, we will assure you that we will, we will protect you during the victory that God is going to give us if you'll stay here. You can't leave. In other words, don't venture out during the battle because we can't guarantee to protect your family. But if you'll stay in the house, we'll do that. And by the way, we want you to mark this place, and she will do that later on in a couple of chapters. We'll read that. Mark this place and let us know by its identification that this is where you're hiding so that our troops, our forces know by that mark that we are not to destroy anyone and to kill anyone in this, this place that's marked. Now, if you do that, then we'll strike up a covenant. You know, it's interesting that the two men in this conversation knew that they were going to possess Jericho even before the battle was, was fought. Why would they know that? Because God had promised it. God had promised it to Abraham, he had promised it to Moses, he had now had promised it to Joshua, and he had promised it to them. It was already a promise, and it was a promise that God was going to keep. For they knew what sometimes we don't know is that when God promises something, he is always faithful to accomplish and to fulfill what he promised. I mean, we have Rahab here who is banking on the fact that God is going to keep his covenant with her through them. She believes she's making a covenant with God. God, please don't destroy me. Save me and my family. Because I believe that you're the, 
one and true and only God. And I believe you're sovereign enough to grant this land to, to your people because this land and me and my business and this city belong to you. And because of that faith and the promise of God to the people of God, God saved her life. Do you really trust the promises of God? When God calls you to step out in obedience and follow him, do you really expect him to fulfill what he promised? I'm convinced sometimes we don't. And, and here's the reason why I think sometimes our expectations of what God's going to do and his promises are what he to do are sometimes not the same. Because you see, we come to God saying, all right, God, I'm going to trust you, but I have an expectation of how it's going to turn out. I, I've already anticipated what the outcome is going to look like. And so therefore, I'm going to trust your promise. But God, if it doesn't turn out the way I think or imagined or believe it's going to turn out, then therefore, I'm going to consider you unfaithful to your promises. And, and I dare to, to ask you now to compare your expectations and the promises of God and to weigh them out honestly to see if you expect God to do something that he has not promised. For there are many who are expecting God to do something that, they have, that, that he has not promised. And because he has not promised to do that, they're disappointed in God. But when our expectations and God's promises are the same, there is never a disappointment because God is always faithful to keep his promises. And he assures us that if we will step out in faith, that he will keep his promise. Not only to assure them of his promises, but he assures them of his protection. It's interesting, you see, in the next couple of verses, verse 21, that he protects these two spies. They dialogue a little bit between uh, Rahab and these two men, and Rahab doesn't miss an opportunity. The opportunity is knocking. She's quickly stepping out in faith. She knows that time is of the essence, and so she approaches these men before they fall asleep in their hiding place. She goes up to the roof, and she involves her in a conversation with them. And in this conversation, verse 21, she says to them, according to your words, so be it. She's about to lower the men down from the window that is inside of the wall of Jericho so the men can leave for safety, and Rahab is wanting to get in the last word. You know what I'm talking about? Are you one of those people that likes to always get the last word? Come on. If you don't know anybody like that, you're probably that person. Now, Rahab's going to get the last word. And as she's lowering them down to safety, she says to them, hey, according to your words, so be it. May God honor what our covenant has been. And then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Why? To identify where she lived. This is the place. Verse 22. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found what? They found what? Nothing. They found nothing. What kept these guys from finding anything at all, especially the two guys that they were looking for? What kept them from finding? Now, I don't know about you, but I love to play hide-and-go-seek with my grandchildren. I love to play it when, when I had smaller kids, and they're not small anymore, and they don't like to play hide-and-go-seek in the house. But uh, hide-and-go-seek is a fun game to play with kids, isn't it? And if you haven't played hide-and-go-seek lately with small children, you need to do that. Uh, the only advantage I have over small children is definitely not my size, but it's my ability to find good places. Because my size always gives me away. 
It's hard to hide this long body in, in places that, that it can't be seen. So my only advantage between very small toddlers is that I, I'm a little smarter than they are. Because toddlers, if you notice, they always go to familiar places. Or sometimes when it's their turn to hide, they always hide in the place that you just hid. Right? And you, and you go around and you go, where are you? And you pretend like you don't see them. Right? So that, why do you do that? You want to build their, their esteem up. You know what I'm saying? Now, some of you are competitive enough. You don't care if a three-year-old cries or not. You need some serious psychological help. Okay? And so here we have these guys who are familiar with the territory. They live there. They know every nook and cranny. Can't find these two spies. Why? Was it because Ahab warned them where to hide? No. Was it because they didn't know where this hiding place was? No. It was because God protected them from the enemy finding out where they were hiding so that, so that they could be safe and secure where God was protecting them from the enemy. I'm here to tell you that whenever God calls you and invites you to join him in whatever he's doing, he will protect you no matter what you face. How do you know that? I know that by experience. But I also know that because of his word. And when God invites and you join in what he's going to do, you can rest assured that he will always protect you from an enemy that may seem like a roaring lion intimidating you and bringing you to your knees and causing you to fret and to worry and to be fearful of the outcome. But God is always there and he will always come to your aid at just the right time with exactly what you need in order to protect you from the enemy. You can trust him. He will protect you. He assures them not only of his plan, of his provision, of his power, of his promise, and his protection, but lastly, he assures them of his providence. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and no one is going to thwart, stop, hinder, or prevent the plan of God from becoming a reality. Notice what it says in verse 23. Then the two men finally arrive. They come down from the hills and passed over, the, came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. That all is an important word. They didn't just say, hey, we can take the land. They told him everything. They gave him the full testimony, the full account. How do you know that? Well, Joshua chapter 2 is a pretty long chapter. It's pretty lengthy. And the reason it is written by the penmanship of, the, uh, of Joshua himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to tell us exactly the full report. We have the full report because this is the report that they gave to Joshua. They told him everything that happened. Why? So that their faith could be established, so that their faith could be strengthened. And because of their testimony, notice what they then claim. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all of the land unto our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Here they're saying we have an enemy in which God has already been at work and God has been so actively working in the hearts of the enemy that they believe they're already defeated. And if the enemy believes that they're already defeated and the land is already ours simply to take and to possess, then why do we lack faith and trust in God? You know, sometimes I think the enemy has more faith in God than we do. Come on. 
We need to trust God. And God is a providential God, and our hands are in the hands of a providential God, and there is nothing that can happen or to thwart or to stop those of us who are in the hand of God as we are following the will of God at the invitation of God. God is going to part the waters. He's going to remove the barriers. He's going to tear down the strongholds and allow us and enable us to occupy those very things that he has promised. Why? Because he's God. So how does all this relate to me and you today? Well, in John 10, 10, there's an interesting passage where Jesus says, he gives his disciples an assurance. He says, I, have, I, I came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what he promised. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And I don't think any of us here would, would debate or argue or discuss the fact that Jesus came to give us life. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we step out of the wilderness of this lost, barren, desolate life, and we cross over through faith in Christ into the newness and become new creations of Jesus. We inherit this wonderful thing called salvation. And a Christ who knew no sin became sin for us and took upon himself our sin against God, died in our place, and our faith in that atoning, redeeming work of Christ on the cross guarantees us eternal life. Right? Right? And none of us in here would argue the fact that we have life. We had a funeral over here at 1 o'clock yesterday. 350, maybe three more, I don't know. It was, it was full over there. And we had a funeral, and the casket was laid out there. And because this man had faith in Christ, we knew that the grave was not final. That was not his final destination. This man, the thing that was there was simply a shell. It was his body that he occupied while he was here on earth, his souls with the Father in heaven. Why? Because of faith in Jesus, we have hope that transcends the grave. Why? Because we have life. Christ rose from the dead, defeated sin, and he gave us life. We would all agree with that, but many of us don't understand. They not only came, uh, came to give us eternal life, he came to give us abundant life. Did he not come to give us abundant life? And is that abundant life not a present life? And if it is not a present life, then why are we presently enjoying an abundant life? I'm convinced that most of us believers are just trying to get by. We're just living day to day. Some of us are living Sunday to Sunday. And that's the only faith, that's the only walk, that's the only journey we're on with Christ. And we're just barely making it by the skin of our teeth. And I don't know about you, if you look at your teeth, there's not any skin on your teeth. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to figure out why that saying is, is a saying, but we say it by the... You know, or by the hair of my chinny chin chin, because you know I got a little more hair on my chin. But why is it that we're not experiencing an abundant life? If if in Christ we are assured of not only eternal life, but abundant life. There are too many of us who are defeated. Too many of us have, have strongholds in our lives that have existed way too long that are robbing us of the victory and the joy and the abundance and the happiness and the fruit and, and all of those things that come with a, an abundant life in Christ. 
Some of us have crossed over the Jordan. We've placed our faith and trust in Christ. Man, we've taken that leap of faith and we've trusted in Jesus and we've camped out on the other side of the Jordan and we've not moved from the day that we made that decision. Some of us have ventured out a little bit, you know. It's a little risky and, and, and we've done that, but we've stopped there. And so I want to ask you these questions as we come to the close. How can you enjoy the, the promised, the abundant life? How can you? Do you believe that there is such a life? Are you sure? I'm convinced that some of us have given up on the idea because we've not lived it and we've never lived it. Or maybe we think that it's for someone else and it's not for us. Is there really such a thing called the abundant life? If there is, have you experienced that life at all, at any time in your journey? And are you experiencing it right now? Will you thank God that that abundant life is available? I think it takes a recognition on our part to just come in prayer to the Father and say, you know what, I, I believe that this abundant life is for me. I know that it's possible, and I want to thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross so that I not only have eternal life, but I can have abundant life presently in this life. Will you be willing to do whatever is necessary to possess the abundant life? Whatever is necessary. Whatever cost, whatever sacrifice, whatever yieldedness needs to be offered, whatever I need to implement to release or to let go, whatever. Lord, I'm willing to do whatever is necessary in order to live this abundant life that you died so that I might have. I have forfeited my inheritance and the promise of the abundant life way too long. And I'm tired of just making it through. Will we trust God enough to recognize that independently and apart from him, I can't attain this life. But as I step out in faith, assured of the things that Joshua and God's people were assured of, that it can be mine and will be mine as I put my trust in him and his work in and through me, it can and will become a reality. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.